Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right, there we go. Sounds good. I'm doing good too. It's uh, it's been a good week uh, for me personally of uh, of delving into God's word. And you're going to be getting a sheet that you can follow along in today's uh, today's message. Um, I'm excited about today's message, and l- let me let me preface this message by by giving you something to think about with respect to some ancient some ancient some old movies that we're all accustomed to. <laughs> How many of you are familiar with the movies The Wizard of Oz and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, you're going to see up above me some pictures there. These are very very common movies and. Ones that have warmed our hearts over the years. My wife is especially uh, fond of The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, these movies have one very common thread between them. And that is this. When Dorothy and all of her characters approached this great and mighty Wizard of Oz, they came to this giant green emerald city in anticipation of something great. They anticipated meeting the greatest wizard of all. And likewise, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when Charlie realized that he had the last golden ticket in his hand, he knew that that meant he could enter the chocolate factory the greatest of all factories in his town that made the best chocolate bars you could possibly imagine. And so both Dorothy and Charlie, as they approached their respective emerald cities and chocolate factories, they were looking for greatness. They were expecting greatness. But alas, the stories change a bit. When Dorothy gets to the Emerald City, her little dog Toto goes behind the veil. And what does he find? He finds a fake. He finds a phony wizard. He finds disappointment. And thus Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the the Scarecrow, they are all disappointed. Such high hopes. Oh, the Wizard of Oz, he's going he's gonna to solve all our problems. And then behind the veil, behind the scenes, disappointment. But Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. When Charlie entered the Chocolate Factory and saw all of the amazement of that factory and all the different kinds of chocolates and those cool little Oompa, Oompa Loompas, he was still amazed. He was still in a state of awe and thought, wow, this is all I expected it to be. And more, so much more when he got behind the gates of the factory. In contrast to Dorothy, who was disappointed when she pulled the veil to see the lowly wizard. Our message today, what we are going to study today, is we're going to be pulling the veil, if you will. We are going to be pulling the curtain, entering the gate of a very famous prophecy of Jesus Christ. And as we approach this prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, 
A famous prophecy we're all aware of, in which Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall conceive a son, and shall bear... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy that we are so familiar with, that we approach and we see and we think, wow, what a great and glorious prophecy. My question to you today is, what happens when you pull the veil behind that prophecy? What happens when you enter the historical gate of that prophecy? And you listen and read and understand that prophecy as it was said in the 8th century B.C.? Will it still be as grand? Will it still be as glorious? Will we find something new to appreciate as a result of this historical study of the prophecy in Isaiah? My title today, and we're going to begin a series as we approach Christmas. Today, and in a couple Sundays, in the Christmas Eve service, the series is called Behind the Christ Prophecies. Behind the Christ Prophecies. And the first being, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son in Isaiah chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there if you will. We are going to look today at getting historical understanding of this prophecy, pulling the veil back, entering the gate, and finding out what was behind this glorious prophecy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And bear with me. We're going to read 16 verses. Now, we, for, for sake of time, we will not be able to go in depth with all 16 of these, but they give us context that we need to comprehend and understand. So read with me Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 all the way to 16. It says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the wind are moved with the wind, as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Verse 10. 
Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we, when we read prophecies about Your Son, Jesus Christ, it warms our hearts. It encourages our souls. It reminds us that You predicted this, the birth of Your Son, Jesus Christ, centuries and centuries beforehand. But Father, there's always a historical context to these passages. And right now, Father, we ask Your help as we attempt to understand this historical context. Help us to understand, Father, why this prophecy was made, to what it pertained to, and how it can help us have a fuller appreciation of its effect in proclaiming the birth of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, a lot to chew on. Let's break it down. There are three main characters in this story. Three main characters. You find them all listed in verses 1 and 2. These three main characters are first, King Ahaz of Judah. Okay? Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. The, the nation of Israel has been divided. We're in the 8th century B.C., approximately 732 B.C. And King Ahaz is in Judah. And he's not necessarily a good king. In fact, he does quite a bit of wickedness before the Lord. The second person in the story is King Pekah of Israel. Israel is the tribe to the north of the divided kingdom of, of Israel, Israel and Judah. And King Pekah is certainly a wicked and evil king. And the third character in the story that we see here is Rezin, King Rezin of Syria. And King Rezin of Syria, we find, has allied himself, has made an alliance with King Pekah of Israel against King Ahaz of Judah. So numbers 2 and 3 up on the screen have allied against King Ahaz of Judah. Take a look at this map here on the next slide. You, you can see a little bit of, of what's going on here. It's a little blurry, I apologize. To the south in purple, you see Judah. To the north of Judah in green, you see Israel, King Pekah's region. And to the north... Uh, east, you see what's called Aram, which is also Syria, which was the territory of King Rezin. So we see here two nations to the north of Judah have allied themselves against King Ahaz of Judah. And Judah and King Ahaz are becoming very worried that this alliance will spell their certain doom. Now notice verses 1 and 2. Let's go straight to the text. Verses 1 and 2. It says again, 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart, that is Ahaz, and the heart of his people, Judah, were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In verse 2, we see the, the phrase that Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Ephraim is another word for Israel. Ephraim was the largest of the tribes in the nation of Israel. And so here we see a clear indication of this alliance between King Pekah and King Rezin. And verse 2 also suggests that when Ahaz and Judah, his nation, heard of this alliance, their hearts sunk. In, in particular, it says their hearts were moved as trees of the woods are moved with the wind. That is, they were swayed to the left and to the right and were helpless, were absolutely helpless and incapable of stopping that swaying. They were terrified. They felt that they would be overcome by these two nations. And to some degree, they were overcome. Not entirely, of course, because we see in verse 1, what does it say in verse 1 at the very top? It says that, but they could not prevail against it at the end of verse 1. Now that is significant. That indicates to us that that's somewhat of a summary statement of all that we're about to read. Verse 1 is a summary statement. And everything we're about to see here is indicative of the fact that Israel and Syria did not ultimately prevail against Judah. In part, they had success. In fact, if you read in 1 Chronicles 28, you will find that they had so much success against Judah that in one day, 120,000 men were killed in the nation of Judah. 120,000 in one day. Scholars estimate that would be between 10 and a third. 10% and a third of the entire male population of Judah in one day were killed by Israel and Syria, King Pekah and King Rezin. But they did not ultimately prevail against Judah. There is more to the story. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he is beginning his ministry. And the Lord calls him and he says, Go out now to meet Ahaz, king of Judah. Go out you and share Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. The fuller's field was a place where uh, clothing would be washed. And Ahaz is out there inspecting the aqueducts. Most likely he's preparing for war. He's, he's checking his, his resources within his country. He's checking the water supply. And Isaiah and his son are going out to meet him as Ahaz is preparing for more battle against Israel and Syria. Verse 4, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, excuse me, do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, 
for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Remaliah. Verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he gives him some information. Some timely information. He gives him, in verse 6, we see in yellow, he gives him the intent of Israel and Syria. He says, beware. They have allied against you and this is what they want to do. They want to come through, annihilate this nation, bring it to its knees, kill you or depose you and set up their own puppet king, Tabal. By the way, the word Tabal there means good for nothing. He's a good for nothing king. He's a puppet king. Isaiah in verse 6 says, this is their intent. Beware of this intent, Ahaz. But Isaiah also gives Ahaz words of hope. Look at verse 5. Notice in yellow, verse 5. He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Or be faint-hearted? For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resident Syria, the son of Ramalai, he's saying that these two kings are like wood that you would take out of a fire, two firebrands, and set outside of the fire by itself. Two smoking firebrands. Let me ask you a question. What happens when you take two pieces of wood and set it outside the fire apart from each other? What happens? Fire goes out. That's what Isaiah is saying in verse 5. He's saying these two are nothing but smoking firebrands. Their, their power will decease. Their power will decease. It will be put out. So take hope, Ahaz. Take hope in this. Okay, let's go on to verse 7. Verse 7. Let's read 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, he's making it very clear now in verse 7, it shall not stand, that is the alliance, Israel, Syria, their efforts, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, Within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. And then notice this. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Okay, what do we make of all of this? Well, here again, verse 7, we see clearly, the Lord is making it clear through Isaiah to Ahaz, this alliance... This advance by the enemy will not stand. It will not happen. He assures him that actually within 65 years, notice verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be broken so that it will not become, so that it will not be a people. And here's one of, uh, one of the many prophecies we're seeing in this text. And this is very significant. In fact, what's interesting about this prophecy is not only did it come to pass, but, but uh, we see it very vividly throughout the Scriptures. We see, this is 732 we're talking about. Ten years later, after this word from Isaiah, ten years later in 722, Assyria came down and took Israel, Ephraim, 
captive, took him away within 10 years. And some scholars suggest the reason why they mention 65 years is because much, much later, there was so much devastation, so much, the land was so war-torn and filled with foreigners that it was said to be uninhabitable again. That as the prophet Isaiah says, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. That is to say, they could never possibly be regathered in that area of the world. And that's precisely what occurred. Within 10 years and later on, within 65 years, the nation of Israel was utterly destroyed. Judah was preserved for a time. But what, what about this where it says in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Why all this obvious uh, lineage specification. We, we already know, we've already seen that, that, that they are the head of these nations and they are the, such and such as son. Why does he mention it again? I would venture to say this. Isaiah, the Lord, through Isaiah, is making it perfectly clear that once the king of Israel, Pekah, and once the king of Syria, Rezin, are removed from the situation, those who are the heads of these nations, the nations themselves will crumble. Once the kings, the king of Israel, Pekah, and the king of Syria, Rezin, once these heads are removed from the nations, the nations themselves will crumble. Thus far, in verses 7 to the early part of verse 9, we see Isaiah prophesying in particular about the inability of Pekah, the king of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria, to overcome the nation of Judah. But what remains to be seen in verse 9 is how Ahaz and the nation of Judah are going to respond to God's prophecy. Notice what it says at the end of verse 9. Judah and their king Ahaz have been told this will not occur. You will be preserved. These nations that have allied against you will not stand. But, in verse 9, the Lord says this. He says, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. That is to say that if you will not believe this message, if you will not believe me, the Lord God says through Isaiah, if you will not believe this prophecy, then even you will not be established. That is to say, you will not be confirmed, be blessed, be verified by God. Your kingdom also will experience discipline and future judgment if you do not believe this. So there's two parts to this story. On the one hand, God says, Judah, you're going to make it. Hang in there. These two nations are not going to defeat you. But, but, you've got to believe what I'm telling you. And if you don't believe what I'm telling you, then you yourselves will experience judgment and God's discipline. 
two sides to this coin. What's going to happen? Oh, by the way, the end of verse 9 there, the word you there is, is in the plural. So Isaiah is indicating that not only is this Ahaz he's calling upon to believe, but the nation as a whole. The royal family who's listening to this message and, and the royal court that has surrounded Ahaz in this conversation, but the nation as a whole should believe in God's message of protection. As if this wasn't enough. As if this wasn't enough. All of God, God's graciousness towards Judah. As if his predictions were not enough of an effort of, on God's part to say, I love you and I want to protect you. He offers yet one more great blessing. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, verse 11, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Very simple. Straightforward. Uh, statement by the Lord. He says, through Isaiah, he says, And Ahaz, I, I want to do all I can to facilitate your belief in my word. I want to do all I can to facilitate your trust and elicit your confidence. And so... I'm going to give you the offer of a lifetime. I'm going to say to you, pick a sign. Pick any sign you want. Whether in the depth or in the height, that is to say, any possible sign that you can possibly conceive of, and I will do it for you to demonstrate that my word is true and that you should have confidence in me and belief in me. Pick anything you want. Now let's review here how far God has gone. God's provision and offer to King Ahaz and Judah. Look what he's done here. Notice the first one. We see this. Israel and Syria will not prevail, he said, God has said this, against King Ahaz and Judah in verse 1. Secondly, we see that God says, if you believe me, I will ensure that your kingdom will continue to experience blessing. And now thirdly, we've come to verse 11 and he says this, and choose any sign you wish and I will grant it to you that you might believe me. Now I liken this third one, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to maybe the, uh, well, how many of you have played Monopoly? Raise your hand if you've played Monopoly. Okay. Now notice uh, we've got a little Monopoly picture up there that you'll see. And uh, it's actually the, the jail card. You see the jail card? Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You know, that's always a frustrating, that's always a frustrating card to receive, isn't it? All of a sudden, you, you've got to go to jail and, you, you know, your, your play on the board is stunted and, and you've got to wait until you get that, oh, that wonderful and glorious card. And what's that card called? The get out of jail free card. Yes, that's right. Now the get out of jail free card is, is, it's simple. Once you get that card, you cash it in. No one in their right mind would simply sit in jail. Well, I guess there's a couple of reasons why you might sit in jail if you're a real strategic player. But, but no one in their right mind would simply remain in jail when they had in their possession the get-out-of-jail-free card. No. You always cash in the get-out-of-jail-free card. 
And you get back on the board and you get back in the game. Ahaz has been given an amazing card by the Lord. He has been given the one free miracle card. One free miracle. Pick any miracle you want. Any miracle that helps elicit your belief and trust in me. And I'll do it for you. Now let me ask you this. Could you ever conceive of not cashing in that card? Could you ever conceive of not cashing in that card? My answer is no. If I got the one free miracle card, I'd be like, score. <laughs> Honey, what would, what would we choose? Sleeping through the night, that's right. One free night of sleep that our son would not cry. That would, that would be a good one. How, how about like a couple years of good sleep though? No one in their right mind would not cash in this card, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but Ahaz is cut from a different cloth. Take a look at verse 12. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. We think to ourselves, hmm, wait a minute, I've heard that before. Yes, yes, that's right. Back in Deuteronomy 6.16, it says that we're not to test the Lord. We're not to tempt the Lord. Oh, okay, so King Ahaz is being pious here. He's being holy. He's, he's demonstrating that, no, 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 I don't want to trouble God. I don't want to tempt Him. I don't want to test Him. No. That is not the intent behind Ahaz's statement. Ahaz is not making a pious statement here. He is not saying, no, no, I don't want to trouble the Lord. I don't want to test Him because Deuteronomy 6.16 tells me I shouldn't test the Lord. That's not what he's doing. Behind this statement, undergirding this statement, is Ahaz's stubbornness. Is Ahaz's refusal to believe in the God of Israel. Ahaz does not want to pay heed to Isaiah's message. Nor does he have any intention of showing belief in the God of Israel to preserve him in this time of national calamity. And so Ahaz resorts to whatever he can find to avoid confronting God. And so what we read as a seemingly pious statement in our text in verse 12 is nothing more than a, a giant shunning of God. God asked him to do something and he said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. He shunned the Lord God of Israel. He refused God's offer. And the Lord does not take that lightly. In fact, we don't have time today, but as you read on in verses 17 and following, you will see that as a result, in my opinion, as a direct result of verse 12's refusal, Judah continued on to receive discipline and judgment, and eventually they were exiled to Babylon less than two centuries later. And Ahaz's refusal in verse 12 played a role in Judah's 
decline. Nevertheless, God says, I'm going to do do a sign anyway. Look at verse 13. Then he said, this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Isaiah saw through Ahaz's intent. He said, Ahaz, you're not being pious by that statement. You are wearying the God of Israel. And your stubbornness is not going unnoticed. Nevertheless, despite Ahaz's refusal to ask for a sign, God is going to give him one anyway. Now we come to the infamous prophecy. We've waited a while now. And now we approach verse 14 in its historical context. We're not extracting the verse and saying, all it is is a prophecy about Jesus and that's all we know and we'll sing a couple songs that have those words and we won't know what it means. No. We're entering verse 14 through the gates, behind the veil, if you will, And we're seeing, does it have any historical fulfillment to it in the 8th century B.C.? Take a look at verse 14, this famous prophecy about the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Verse 16, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, permit me, if you will, to work backwards. I want to start with verse 16 to 15 to 14. Verse 16 says this again. It says, For before the child, this promised child, shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Well, in view of the context of Isaiah chapter 7, which two kings do you think is being spoken of by Isaiah? King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin of Syria? Very, very obvious answer here. Very obvious answer. Very clearly understood that the two kings spoken of in verse 16 that will be forsaken from their land are King Pekah and King Rezin. This is a direct result of the coming of this child. Verse 16, the, the first part of verse 16 also suggests that these two kings would fall out of power before a certain child knows how to refuse evil and choose good. That is, before the child can understand or comprehend between good and evil. Now, if we were to speculate that a child can perhaps comprehend the difference between good and evil at, say, the age of three or four, then it's clear by verse 16 that these two kings, Pekka, and Rezin will be deposed of their kingdoms within two, three, maybe four years. 
Guess what? It was two years, and these two kings were killed, just like the prophecy said. In two years, Pekah was slain by one of his own countrymen, Hosea, who took over the nation of Israel. And Rezin, king of Syria, was destroyed by the Assyrians, who came down from the north and began their conquest of Palestine and other lands. Excuse me, the northern kingdom and other lands to the north. Both of these two kings were killed before this child, whoever this child was, knew the difference between good and evil within two years. How about verse 15? Look at verse 15. It says this, 7.15, Curds and honey he shall eat, this child, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Okay, we're using, we're dealing with similar language here, but there's a looming question to this. How is it possible? How could a child learn how to reject evil and choose good by eating curds and honey? I don't know about you, but this racked my brain for a while. <laughs> because this is actually what it means in Hebrew. There's a causal relationship between eating curds and honey and rejecting evil and choosing good. The word that there is very specific. It is a causal relationship. The child, whoever this child might be, learns to reject evil and choose good because he eats curds and honey. How is this possible? How can someone's moral compass be guided by a diet of curds and honey? Let me read you something that I've, I've written to help explain this a little more fully. Notice what it says here. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the blessing of God was often demonstrated by the quality and crop of the land, the land. If the land produced curds and honey, it was understood that God was displeased with the king and or the nation. The child of Isaiah 7:15 will come to learn that his poor diet of curds and honey is directly related to the unfaithfulness of his king and nation toward God. This knowledge will help guide the child to make good choices that please God and bring forth his blessing. This, I believe, is precisely what was meant by a diet of curds and honey developing one's moral compass. The child knew as he ate food that was somewhat spoiled, food that was scarce, he knew as he grew up that, that his diet was directly related to God's blessing not being upon his land. And that his king and his nation had affected his poor diet because they had disobeyed the Lord. And they had not received God's favor. And so when the child, every time he ate the curds, the sour milk and the honey, he was reminded that I will not be like those who have come before me, who ruined my diet, who ruined my livelihood by their poor choices. Let me give you an example. In modern day, I liken this. I have a friend who I grew up with who was physically abused. Physically abused. And he's a good friend of mine. And it affected him so much so that when he 
when we talked about having kids one day, we would talk about you know getting married one day uh, and having a family. He was so adamant that he would never strike his child. He would never strike his child, he said, because he knows what his father did to him. And he knows what kind of devastating effect it had on him. In the same way, that friend of mine, his moral compass was directly related to the sin of his father. He was resolved to never strike his child because he knew how devastating it was to him as a child. And in the same manner, this child of the promise, who ate curds and honey, his moral compass would be constructed on the basis of knowing that his diet was related to the sin of those that came before him. And he would say in his mind, I will not fail the Lord God like they failed and affected my life. I will not fail the Lord God like they failed and affected my life. That is what is meant by verse 15. And now to verse 14, our final verse. When you and I read verse 14, again, we usually read it apart from its historical context. Our minds instantly think, Jesus, end of story. Close the Bible. Don't worry about opening it back up to Isaiah 7. It just means Jesus. I venture to say there's something more here. It does mean Jesus. But it also has a historical fulfillment. What did King Ahaz and the nation of Judah think? What did they ponder when they heard verse 14 out of the lips of Isaiah the prophet of God? Verse 14 says this. Verse chapter 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin, the virgin, the direct article, excuse me, the definite article listed in front of the word virgin. Some scholars speculate that the reason why it was a direct article was because Isaiah was perhaps referring to someone in the immediate presence of the company of people that he was speaking to. Uh, That is a very real possibility, that Isaiah was pointing at someone that Isaiah was uh, perhaps indicating a woman out of the crowd, indicating this virgin would conceive and bear a son. Within its historical context, remember, we're looking at Isaiah 7 from an 8th century historical fulfillment and also from its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. But, based on verse 16, these two kings that are deposed are deposed because of the birth of this child, before this child comes to know the difference between good and evil, these two kings are deposed. So this child must have some historical fulfillment. So I ask the question, who was this woman? And who was this son? My answer to this question is very much contingent on the text of Isaiah itself. If you continue on, one chapter later, we find a tremendously similar passage. 
I want to compare these two and point out a few similarities. Take a look at the next slide. Take a look at the next slide, and we are going to see the difference or the similarities between two texts. On the left-hand side, we have our prophecy as we understand, as we've been reading it today. On the right-hand side, we have what's listed just a chapter later in the book of Isaiah. Let me read for you first our prophecy and then the latter. Isaiah 7, 14 to 16. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, curds and honey. He shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now look a chapter later. Verse 3 of chapter 8. Then I, Isaiah, went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, that is Syria, and the spoils of Samaria, that is Israel, will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Notice the similarities. In yellow, on the left-hand side, the prophecy is that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. To the right, a prophetess conceives of Isaiah and bears a son. In green, before, on the left-hand side, before the child knows the difference, um, excuse me, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the uh, before he knows this, something is going to happen. And on the right-hand side, similarly, before the child can be able to say, my father and my mother, I would venture to say that these are very parallel elements. As a child learns to speak, so a child learns his moral compass. And finally, in orange, before this happens, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And on the right-hand side, just a chapter later, the riches of Damascus, Syria... And the spoil of Samaria, Israel, will be taken away before the king of Assyria. What do we see here? I would argue we see nothing but similarities between these two texts. Nothing but similarities. You say, well, wait a minute, Neil. Uh, I have some objections. Here's my first objection. My first objection is this. Uh, in 714, to the left, the child's name is Emmanuel. Whereas in 8.3, the child's name is... You laugh that I haven't memorized this? Maher Shalal Hash Baz. Okay, good objection. Let's deal with that objection. Next slide. The word Emmanuel. The fact that, we, that the prophet specifies that his name will be called Emmanuel. Here's a good... Uh, here's a good point by the Fawcett Bible Dictionary. It says this, Call his name Emmanuel means not mere appellation, meaning the actual name of the person, for this was not the designation by which men ordinarily named Jesus, but his revealed character shall be what Emmanuel means. Jesus never went by the name Emmanuel, by his appellation, but in Understanding his character and his person, we called him Emmanuel, God with us. And so the child of chapter 8, verse 3, did not need to be named literally Emmanuel in order for him to be a kind, a kind 
a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. But Neil, I have one other objection. Um, Isaiah 7.2 indicates that Isaiah already had a son. Isaiah 7.2 indicates that Isaiah already had a son. If he already had a son, how could this wife, the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3, be a virgin? Very good objection. A very good objection and very difficult to deal with. How is it possible that Isaiah's second son be conceived of a virgin? My first response is this. We're not forced to assume that the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3, is the mother of Isaiah's other son in 7.3. In fact, it is quite possible that Isaiah's sons were born from different mothers. Perhaps the first mother died and he married another, the prophetess, who perhaps was, who was a virgin. In effect, the prophetess would have been a second wife of Isaiah. The scriptures do not make this clear. But the similarities between these two texts compel us to really examine whether or not its 8th century fulfillment is fulfilled in Isaiah's second son. But I also want to talk very briefly about the word virgin, part B. And I will preface this by saying very clearly, what I'm about to say in no way affects the doctrine of the virgin birth in no way affects it. But I want to explain something to you that is a little bit difficult, and it will help us understand some of the background of this word in Hebrew. The Hebrew word alma, translated virgin in chapter 7, verse 14, can mean either A, virgin, or B, young woman. In Hebrew, there is a word, Bethula, which specifically means virgin, and only virgin. But Isaiah, through God's word, chose a word that had a wider range of meaning. Alma, meaning virgin, or also young woman. Or combined, a, a young woman who was a virgin. What does this mean? Um, I want to say clearly, this allows for the possibility of Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, not being a virgin, but yet being a young woman who conceives a second son, who is conceived as a sign to King Ahaz and Judah that Israel and Syria will be destroyed and not prevail against them. It lends open the possibility that the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3, is simply a young woman Isaiah's wife. Now let me make this also very, very clear. Regardless, at the top, regardless of whether the Hebrew word Alma is translated virgin or young woman for the prophecy's uh, 8th century B.C. fulfillment in Isaiah's son, it is undoubtedly clear that virgin was in view for its 1st century A.D. fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly clear. Because when Matthew translates this prophecy of Isaiah, he uses the Greek word that only means virgin. That only means virgin. And what is that passage in Matthew? Matthew 1, 22 and 23. So all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us. Okay. In summary, 
What are we saying today? What are we learning about this text? I want a, to show you a chart that perhaps will help finalize and, and make it concrete in your mind what we have learned. Notice this chart. Okay, we have our prophecy at the top. We're all familiar with it. What does this mean? What does it mean that in Isaiah 7.14, a virgin or a young woman will conceive and have a son that is called Emmanuel, which means God with us? Well, I would argue this. I would argue that this prophecy has not only a first century fulfillment in the Virgin Mary and the coming of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, but that this prophecy, as we've read in its historical context, must have undoubtedly had an 8th century fulfillment. Were it not so, it would make no sense that Jesus would be born and then King Pekah in Syria would be deposed. That's 800 years later. And so we have to look for an 8th century fulfillment. And I would argue that that 8th century fulfillment is found in Isaiah's wife, the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3. I would argue that the son of the promise, according to its historical context, was Isaiah's second son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And with his birth, within two years of his birth, King Pekah and King Rezin were deposed. And Judah was preserved, if only for a little while. What does this do for our faith? This is reason to pause and to marvel at the sovereignty of our Almighty God. In our text today, we've learned that the Lord preserved Judah by great and dramatic prophecy. We've learned that within two short years, two great kings were deposed of their power by the birth of a simple child. I ask the question, what effect? What effect as we finalize our study today? What effect does this historical study of Isaiah 7 have on our understanding of Jesus' birth? Does it even matter that we understand this history? I say yes, it does. It very much does. Let me say this. The history behind the Christ prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 reminds us that God is sovereign. He is always in control. And He delights in using what is humble to accomplish great acts of protection and redemption. There is one common thread as we understand the history, and that is this. The fate of King Ahaz and Judah rested upon the birth of a son to Isaiah. Their fate rested upon the birth of this son. So also the fate of every person on this earth rests upon the birth of Jesus Christ. It rests upon the presence of the Savior of the world in whom through simple faith in Him we can have everlasting life. It does matter to understand the history of this prophecy. It helps us appreciate how God uses humble means, the birth of a mere baby, to depose kings, overthrow rulers, protect nations that are faithful to Him. It shows how even in the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ, the fate of all of us, the fate of all of us was at stake in the baby who was born at Bethlehem. Let us appreciate 
what is behind the prophecies of Jesus Christ. Let us appreciate them. Let us comprehend them more. And let it strengthen our faith as we enter this Christmas season. Our fate rests upon the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we marvel at the beauty of Your Word. We marvel at the beauty of the story that You've given us today. That King Ahaz and Judah, who were terrified of the nations that were to the north, they thought that surely that they would be overthrown. Yet, Lord, despite their stubbornness, You reminded them that even by means of the birth of a small child, You would preserve them. And Father, Matthew, as he wrote his Gospel, read this same prophecy one day, and he he looked upon it and he said, Aha, this also has great significance as we recognize our fate in the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and His coming to earth has tremendous implications. Our eternal destiny is contingent upon His coming and upon our expressing faith in Him for everlasting life. I pray for each one in this room that we might greater appreciate these prophecies spoken hundreds of years before the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might appreciate these prophecies, understand them in their history, and give us a fuller comprehension of who it is that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Son. In His name we pray. Amen.